This episode of the Paddock Pass Podcast is brought to you by Fly Racing. Welcome to the Paddock Pass Podcast presented by Fly Racing. On today's show, we're going to look forward to the German Grand Prix at the Saxon Ring, but I think it would be remiss not to kick things off by talking to the probably the most esteemed football scribe and fan that I know, David Emmett. You must have been dancing on the streets of the Netherlands after their 3-2 win against Ukraine. Um, is there football on? There you go. <laughs> ah, cutting as ever, Dave. Adam, uh, is, is it coming home yet? It's on its way, Steve. It's on its way. Um, actually, there's only two games on today, I think, instead of the usual three. So it'll be a slight withdrawal, uh, you know, so a few withdrawal symptoms this afternoon. You're are... on your way home as well, though, aren't you, Ed? I'm what, sorry? You're on your way home as well, though, soon enough. On my way home, yes. Uh, next week is um, round two of MXGP, uh, British Grand Prix at Matterley Basin, which, you know, I'm sure anyone who keeps an eye on the news will be a little disappointed, especially if you're British-based. Um, from what I understand, uh, Matterley Basin is a vast site for anyone who hasn't been um, a big circuit down in Winchester, uh, England's original capital city. And 4,000 tickets, of you know, which was the maximum that could be sold for the event, were sold out. Um, and I was—I think the organisers were hoping that with the restriction um, or the restrictions on, you know, the uh, let me start again—the regulations on the with, with regards to the pandemic restrictions will be lifted by June the 21st. Um, you know, which would have meant a lot of people could come up and roll into the gates on the day. Um, you know, and it would have seen a really good crowd and turnout, I think, for the Grand Prix. But now uh, the, the British Grand Prix is limited to those 4,000. But um, yes, yeah, so it'll be good to get there and get some uh, some interviews and some content. I missed a trip to Russia last weekend, which was the opening race um, of the twice delayed uh, World Championship calendar. Um, yeah, let, let's see uh, what happens there. Yeah, uh, the changing restrictions are, uh, um, I mean, it, it's causing some really sort of awkward situations because uh, Aston announced that they'd be having 11,500 uh, fans in. And then I think last week the Dutch government announced that as of the 30th of June, uh, they would be uh, allowing, uh, you know, just normal events to uh, to happen again with very few restrictions. Um, that would have been just after Aston. And then earlier this week they announced it would be, there'll actually be, allowing it from the 26th which is the Saturday um, uh, but it's too late for Aston to actually change anything uh, this is something I'm going to go and talk to the the, the uh, preview there's the presentation of the of the race next week or tomorrow actually so I'll be going up to Aston tomorrow to find out Dave can they I mean you wouldn't think it's not such a stretch for them to put a load more staff on the gate and then you know I mean it'll be kind of chaos in then I'd assume for Sunday but I mean at least there's a chance of getting more people there yeah, but I think it's just the actual organisation of it because, I mean, uh, events being opened up in Holland, but only with a negative test, uh, so that you've got to have all the testing facilities in place and uh, the, there's all these other sort of uh, bits and bobs. So, you know, maybe maybe they will open it up. It's just it's just really, really unfortunate timing that um, uh, as of the 26th, or that they announced this week, if they announced it a few weeks ago, uh, then maybe we could have had more fans at us. And also there's the whole question of, you know, ticket refunds and all the rest of it from the 2020 race. So, And of course, uh, in MotoGP, it's been recently announced that the double header at Red Bull Ring um, is going to be back to sort of full capacity. Uh, somebody from KTM was telling me that the huge orange grandstand they usually block book out um, doesn't even have any social distancing involved. So I think you'll see, you know, 
maybe the first event since 2019, anything like normal for, for MotoGP, which in Austria, which is going to be good. Yeah, I mean, the, what's strange is that uh, Aston have got 11,500 tickets available for on each of the three days, and they haven't even sold out all three days. Um, there's, uh, I think we saw this in Barcelona as well, where they had what 22,000, and they didn't sell out. Uh, uh, they didn't sell out all the tickets. Um, it's uh, it, it, there is still some reluctance, I think, for for fans to actually go. Also, just because of the testing and all the other um, uh, precautions around it. Yeah, I think there's clearly quite a bit of hesitation for some people. And uh, I have to say, like, Mizano was our first race in World Superbikes where we had fans. There was 5,000 in attendance over the course of Saturday and Sunday. I think it was 11,000 overall for the full weekend. But it was nice to see a crowd bag. It looked like it was empty, basically. 5,000 people around a race circuit always looks tiny. But it was a very different weekend. There was a very different atmosphere at the track. And in and around... Catolica and Riccione and Mizano, there really was a very different atmosphere than anything I've seen in the last year. The beaches were full, the restaurants were full, Italy were playing against Turkey and the square was full to watch the football and it felt like you were back to something a bit normal and to to be honest it was frankly terrifying as well because you're also (laughs) in and around this, like everyone's half cut just watching the football, cheering, shouting, singing songs. And uh, yeah, it was definitely definitely a, a strange sensation to be in and amongst that. I'm sure people are desperate to get back to sporting events, but I also wonder if there are some hesitancy, like Dave says. Um, you know, people are looking at the administration required, um, you know, all the criteria to get into events, but also probably, I imagine there's quite a few people who had their fingers burned with bookings for holidays or flights or, you know, even for theatre tickets well in advance have now been bumped back well over a year. Um, you know, this is all kind of money going out of the bank account and not necessarily rushing back in. So, you know, I think you could understand if people are, you know, reluctant about parting with a better part of 100 plus euros to, to, to do, go to some sort of sporting event that might not happen. Yeah, I think it's probably only really the Euros where we're seeing people actually go to, you know, the maximum amount of capacity as well. Like an awful lot of events are quite small. I did see for the UK though, at least that looks like there's going to be some changes afoot in the next few weeks. Adam, it looks like Wimbledon's going to be at full capacity for the tennis, and then obviously football is going to increase. You already mentioned about uh, the MXGP being at a, a pretty small, low number, even though that's an outdoor event. Well, that's what stinks about it, really, because, I mean, Wimbledon is obviously a huge national sporting event in the UK um, and the European Football Championships is, you know, uh, the the biggest tournament for one of the largest sports in the continent. Um, And I think the UK government have dodged any kind of political problems with that by saying they're pilot events just to see, you know, if people can congregate together without a, a surge in cases. Um, you know, is ignoring the logic of, say, the Donington World Superbike round where you could easily have people socially distanced in open air. And in theory, it would be a more hygienic and safer place for people to gather as opposed to, say, Centre Court or Wimbledon or, you know, funneling through small uh, narrow turnstiles and concourses at Wembley Stadium. So it's, uh, you know, I mean, we can get into the political side of it, Steve, but it does kind of um, basically seems like a, a sham. It it does seem, David, like another one of those examples where we do just see just how much of a minority sport motorsport is in general, motorcycle racing in particular, that regardless of the amount of money that comes in from the motorsport industry as a whole, that they really are just seen as 
you know, a, a, just a very small thing for even the British government. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, this, there is perhaps an even more interesting debate in Japan over whether to hold the Olympics or not. Obviously, you know, uh, the Japanese government are trying to do everything to make sure it happens and it will go ahead. But there's an enormous amount of resistance inside the country because they have quite a low vaccination rate. Um, uh, it's just... Um, uh, people always go on about keeping politics out of sport, but you can't. Sport and politics are, you know, the, you can't keep politics out of any aspect of life. It's uh, it's all very much the same. And uh, the, the things, it, it's about national prestige. Uh, even though the most sports industry brings in a lot of money uh, to several countries, it's only really in the countries like Spain, for example, where uh, the racing industry has a lot of political power thanks to its popularity um, that that uh, things can actually go ahead. You go to sort of smaller countries where it's uh, very much a fringe sport. I mean, despite the fact that uh, the, the Dutch TT at Assen is the largest um, one-day event in the Netherlands, um, it still doesn't carry all that much sway um, because it's a it's a fringe event. You know, F one has more um, has more of a sway, despite being well. I don't know. Uh, despite it, it never getting the attendances, the Dutch Grand Prix is never getting the attend the, the same attendances because um, uh, because there's a Dutch racer in it. Yeah, and it's probably also because you pay 50 million quid for an F one race. You don't pay 50 million quid for a MotoGP race or a World Superbike race, and it's why. With 15 billion having been spent on the Tokyo Olympics, you've got no choice. You're you have to be all in on it at this stage if you're the Tokyo government or the Japanese government. Adam, obviously enough, we've also kept our numbers down this week. No Neil Morrison. What the hell did you do to him on your climbs around the Catalan Hills last week? Haven't heard from him for about six days. It's not my fault, Steve. I think he had a slight blowout after the last double header. And uh, now he's recovering in time for the following double header. I mean, it's an intense time for MotoGP. And, you know, talking about um, the effects of the pandemic, you know, there are still people loitering around Catalonia and Andorra because they couldn't travel home uh, in order to get past the German border policies uh, for Saxon rings. So there's been, uh, you know, a few MotoGP people, MotoGP people um, you know, hanging around the country. So uh, we went for a bicycle ride with uh, Harry Lloyd, who works for, you know, Repsol Honda. Um, and it was quite a pleasure to watch him sweating his way up the hill. Although I have to say it's still sweltering here in Catalonia with juice and thunderstorms because it's nearly 30 degrees. So uh, it's kind of very Jerez-esque um, conditions here. I tell you what, I wouldn't recommend going for a run with Harry. Whenever it was myself and Harry doing the World Superbike commentary, I've never seen anyone that can just dig in and force themselves to go through a pain barrier like Harry. And uh, there was times whenever you'd go and you'd run a lap of the track and then Harry would kind of be there. I'll just I'll keep I'll keep going. And he just did another lap, two laps. Of the track could be sweltering conditions in Mizano, you know, 30 degrees and Harry's out there doing 12, 15 Ks kind of thing just to just to give himself a reason to, to feel that he's actually been out there in the heat. But uh, David, obviously enough. We've had the double header recently between Mugello and Catalonia. We've got the next double header coming up, Saxon Ring and Assen. And these are two really big races. It's just before we go in the summer break. But we've been talking a lot on the pod- on the podcast lately about Mark Marquez, Honda and Saxon Ring. We're finally at that point. Uh, yeah, yes. Uh, we're at the point where uh, Mark Marquez wins a uh, race again and we don't get to talk about Honda having sanctions. Um, or, sorry, concessions. You know, it's... Um, 
Mark uh, Marquez owns the Saxon ring, and there's no reason to think that that's going to change. Uh, is this the same as your prediction in Portimao that he might still be able to win the championship? Day? No, 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 no. This is this is this is this is very different. This is the fact that he has won. He's won ten races in a row, including seven MotoGP races in a row, uh, which is one of the longest streaks. On uh, uh, the only person with a longer streak, because um, I was just going through the uh, ye olde history books, uh, and uh, the Agostini. only person. Uh, sorry, Agostini. Yeah, Ag- yeah, Agostini at Spa and at Imatra in fin- in Finland. Uh, he won nine in a row in Finland. He won eight in a row at Spa Francorchamps. Um, uh, and, uh, the, the Valentino Rossi also has seven in a row, um, at Mugello. So, uh, obviously Mark Marcus has only done seven, uh, premier class wins in a row. Uh, but he also won. Uh, a one two five race and both motor two races he raced there. So I think it's fair to say he's quite good around um, uh, around Saxon Ring. I tell you what, boys, I've got a couple of quiz questions for you just to go. Adam, you did this a few weeks ago before Mugello, I think. <laughs> yeah, but at least and, I gave you some uh, warnings, Steve. I mean, come on. Yeah, well, you know, Seems this is reasonable. where it comes down to. Now, in fairness, this is going to be quite an easy quiz for for two esteemed football journalists, like sorry, <laughs> motorsport journalists like yourself. Um, who's got the most premier class wins at the German Grand Prix? You mean the Saxon Ring or the German Grand Prix? The German Grand Prix in its entirety. Uh, I most think it's, Agost- it's Agostini. Yeah. It uh, is. Well, it, it depends. I mean, West German, or are we talking the oh, German Grand Prix or the West that's German that's Grand Prix? You went there, didn't you? Yeah. The German Grand Prix. There was obviously the East German Grand Prix. There was never any, I don't think there was any, any race ever termed as the West German Grand Prix. I think it was always just called the German Grand Prix back then even though it would have been held in West Germany but yeah Ago has eight German Grand Prix and I think it's six East German Grand Prix so comfortably out in front <laughs> of Mark Marquez and his his pathetic his <laughs> paltry seven premier class race victories in Saxon Ring tell you what I got one other one for you what tracks have hosted the German Grand Prix uh, right. Nebergring Saxon Ring Hockenheim uh I'm struggling now. I know it was mostly it was mostly Hockenheim and Nurburgring uh, and the Saxon Ring when it was East Germany until um, uh, what was it Werner Brown or whatever is the uh, the, um, uh, the the West German one and all of the East Germans sat, sat around singing the West German national anthem and, uh, and ne- Neil is Neil is on his own in the moment at the moment so he would be in. <laughs> Solitude, trouble. There oh, you go. Yes. Oh, there you right, go, yeah. Adam. I'll tell you what, he's got it. Um, anyway, there we move away from our uh, our very easy quiz, like I said, for oh, two men like I, yourselves. I've got a quiz question. Where is Solitude? Uh, it's in Germany, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> Did they ever have a Grand Prix at the, the Avis track? Was it called Avis? You know, the, the one in Berlin that was basically two stretches of motorway joined by a hairpin. Um, and, a, and a very mm. large loop um, I'm sure you know there was actually if you go through Berlin and you start driving out south of the city the grandstand next to the track I think they raced DTM touring cars up there until the 80s or 90s you can still see the remnants of a, a grandstand where the race, you know the Nazi race party it until a few years ago it's uh, the, the 
it's it's it actually sounds similar to the Nurburg ring. I'd have to have a look for it. the Norris ring or something like that. Uh, well, anyway, so it's a fascinating piece. If if, if you're driving south, I can't remember the name of the motorway, but um, yeah, you can drive past like this dilapidated old uh, grandstand where all the dignitaries used to sit in the fifties. David, I I think that solitude is somewhere close to Stuttgart because I remember I was down at like the Merck factory at one stage whenever I was living in Germany, and there was like a an area in and around there called Solitude. But uh, is Mark Marquez going to be in Solitude this weekend, David? Is he going to be on his own out in front, or is he going to be going to be hassled all the way through? Uh, no, he's going to be. Uh, I mean, it's it's going to be the same old story. It's all left-handers, which Mark Marquez is very good at. Um, uh, his left shoulder is, mm, uh, you know, perfectly fine. Won't use his right shoulder very much. Uh, the problems that they're having with the Honda is in acceleration and in braking. And there isn't very much braking and there isn't very much sort of straight up acceleration. You know, the, the bike is on the edge of the tire all the time and no one is better at drifting a bike and, uh, you know, finding drive on the edge of the tire uh, around left-hand corners than Mark Marcus. I'm afraid for me, David, it has to be Maverick. Um, he's my tip for this weekend, even though, you know, his, uh, his troubles are well documented or his troubles or his, his position, I should say. But, um, you know, if you're looking at, um, the, obviously, the last time MotoGP went to the Sachs ring was 2019, and he finished second uh, that day. And then uh, in 2018, I think there were two two Yamahas on the podium, Valentino Rossi yeah. and Maverick. So aside from Mark, then there's only one other rider on the grid with uh, some kind of potential at the Saxon ring. So I've got to throw my money his way. But how is, um, uh, how is Maverick going to beat Mark Marcus? I mean, Mark already said at um uh at barcelona you know when he crashed i felt like mark again uh it was worth risking it i didn't feel any bad that means his mentality has changed again his mindset has changed again he's thinking about winning races again uh so how how do you beat mark marcus at a track like that yeah but then the one thing about that is mark has been racking up the crashes over the last few rounds obviously enough mark's going to be out there now with a win it or bin it mentality, he doesn't really care too much about anything else right now other than getting himself back on to win races. He's clearly shown he can crash again without running the risk of an injury. So I think that the one thing about it is though, how's he going to react whenever he's in the, the thick of a fight at the front? And how are those other riders going to be around him? I think it's going to be quite a challenging weekend for him. I think, you know, Juan Mir needs to find something as well. I think uh, obviously Quattararo is looking to to bounce back after the disappointments in Catalonia. I think it's not going to be quite like it was a few years ago for Mark whenever he turned up at the Saxon Ring and it was just a straight up fight for a second. And also the Saxon Ring kind of occurs at the first sort of entry phase into the summer, you know, and that gave Mark enough time to build momentum, uh, get his pace, get his confidence. But at the at the moment he's still in the mire, you know. I mean, the crazy amount of laps he did at the Catalan Test. Uh, you know, has that helped him find something on the Honda to give him a bit more confidence and competitiveness? I mean, for me, you know, I have no doubt that Marquez at that place and bearing in mind his record is going to be, you know, more competitive than we've seen him so far in 2021. But I'm more curious to see what the Ducatis can do because, you know, I think they have one victory at the Saxon Ring. Uh, Casey Stoner, um, you know, he took the bike to a win. Uh, Dovi was on the podium a couple of years ago and when three Desmos Adichis filled the top five. But apart from that, they've been largely absent 
um, you know, just from the nature of that that technology and the circuit. So, you know, what can Bagnaya, Miller and, and co uh, produce this weekend? Yeah, I think I'm really keen to see what happens with Ducati as well, because obviously you've also got Johan Zarco in the mix as well, second in the World Championship, still chasing that first Premier Class win. But what can he do here this week as well? Obviously, for Miller and Bagnaya, there's a lot of pressure as the factory Ducati riders. I think it's been interesting to hear what Miller had to say this week, where he was talking in terms of he's gotten rid of all the distractions. He he doesn't care about having fun right now. He's got a goal in mind, and that's to make sure he gives himself a chance to win the World Championship. And that kind of focus isn't something that Miller had, say, five years ago. It's not something that he had probably even a, a, a couple of years ago. He's got that now because he's got a real chance. And he also knows that in MotoGP, you have to be able to maximize everything. And that's week in, week out. This hasn't been a good track for Ducati in the past at different times. But we've also seen Ducati's made big steps forward. Yeah, I mean, the 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 section ring is the antithesis of everything the Ducati is good at, really. Uh, you know, there isn't much hard braking. There isn't much uh, that, you know, basically there's, there's down the bottom of the hill and there's up into turn one and that's it. Um, uh, apart from that, it's all just the bike on the edge of the tyre all of the time. And there's a couple of very hard changes of direction. Um, there is the always exciting waterfall turn, what is it, turn 11, where everyone manages to fall off uh because you've got sort of light tires and the uh, and the right hand side of the tire is uh, is cold um but the i mean it's the the ducati is a long low and fast bike and what you need is a short and twitchy bike to go fast around there or something which can hold a lot of corner speed uh, or something you can slide and i think i mean if a ducati is going to threaten uh, uh mark marcus or even you know like aim for some success at, at the Saxon ring. I sort of have a feeling that it's going to be Pekka Banyaya precisely because he's much better with the tire, with the, with the, with the bike on the edge, uh, bike on the edge of the tire. You know, he was, um, strong at, uh, strong at Hearth a couple of times. Uh, obviously Miller was, um, uh, exceptional at, uh, at Hearth. So maybe that will translate as well. Um, but it's going to be, it's going to be interesting to see whether they can bring anything. Yeah, and you mentioned Peko there as well, David. Obviously, it was an off-colour couple of rounds for him. I think it's fair to say that uh, he was badly affected by everything that happened with Jason Japaski, particularly at Mugello. And then to come back a week later, he didn't seem quite on the boil either in Catalonia. So I think he's one of those riders that's really going to have taken something from getting away from the paddock for 10 days. And then you come back and it's almost like a natural reset to go to Saxon Ring. Yeah, I, I agreed. It's a completely, it's a proper reset rather than just sort of, you know, getting away and going to a different track. It's a proper reset where you get, you get back into a training rhythm. You can work on some stuff. Uh, you can just sort of like work through, properly get away, not think about things, um, and just sort of process what's going on and then make the next step forward. Are we more fascinated to see whether Ducati can be competitive or the KTMs continue their role? I mean, second, first, now onto the third Grand Prix, you know, is Oliveira likely to be up there? I, that's a really interesting question. I am very, very interested uh, to see what they can do. Uh, again, we're at a track. I mean, the improvement which the KTM has made has been with rear grip, you know, we're rear grip and acceleration. Um, that's not really an issue at the Saxon ring because, again, it's a, it's about the, the, the bike on the side. Um, I... Th- 
think that Oliveira. I mean, the, the thing that Oliveira has got is is, is momentum. Uh, you know, he's feeling good. He's feeling confident. That everything is starting to work. I'll also be interested to see what what Brad Binder can do uh, uh, on the KTM as well. Whether the he can make. Well, whether he can improve. The the trouble with Binder is that he seems to qualify poorly and at the Saxon ring, that is a really, really big problem because it's so difficult to overtake. There are so few places you can do it. Yeah, I was going to ask you about Binder as well, Adam, because obviously at the start of the season, whenever we were doing our you know, writers of the day for the Paddock Notes show on patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast, we always seem to talk about Brad Binder and his ability to come through. Like David said, he qualifies a little bit pearly and has to make his make his moves, but over the course of the last few rounds, we haven't really been able to see that from Brad. What's what's been the issues from? I think it's um, also just that rookie factor, Steve, because this will be the third of the last four races where he hasn't ridden the MotoGP bike at a particular circuit. Um, let's not forget the Saxon Ring and also Assen weren't on the 2020 schedule, so uh, it's another period of discovery for Binder and also you know in Holland as well next week, and I think. You know, he's still missing that um, ability to, you know, take the Friday by the scruff of the neck um, and get the time needed to enter into like Q2 directly. Although, you know, he did manage it in Catalonia. Um, and I, I think that's just the, the, the biggest obstacle at the moment. David, I saw you going a little bit uncomfortably there when Adam said Holland. Can you give everyone your annual lesson on, uh, on Dutch geography? <laughs> Yes, well, uh, about the fact that there are actually two provinces called Holland and uh, the um, uh, it, around Amsterdam and The Hague, uh, stretching from the uh, northwest to the southwest, and um, uh, Aston actually being in Drenthe, which is a different province and is part of the Netherlands and not uh, not Holland. But uh, that's all right. I'm sure. Um, uh, uh, I'm sure. Steve, you're used to being called uh, English by non-native English speakers. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's because it's his name, Dave. Well, also, yeah, also. <laughs> I'll be honest, I do always find it very funny whenever uh, Catalans get into an argument with me about uh, Catalun- Catalonia versus Spain and then say, but sure, you know what that's like over in Britain, Steve. <laughs> and I'm kind of there, not really. Um, <laughs> But uh, that's a that's a fun little uh, ge- geopolitical uh, off track for us to have taken there. But uh, Adam, just when you look at uh, KTM and their improvements over the last couple of rounds, it was surprising to see such a big step forward. But we did talk at the start of the start of the season about it was the tire allocation seemed to be working against them as much as anything else. And I think the last few rounds, yes, they've made changes to the bike, but the last few rounds have also borne that out. Yeah, Steve, and I think the Saxon Ring and Assen as part of the Netherlands, um, you know, will be kind of the final test really to see, you know, whether those those chassis modifications are working for the factory. But I, I mean, the main kind of headline factor, I think, you know, when it comes to the Austrian, uh, you know, those four bikes on the grid is the fact that, you know, how they were able to react so quickly. And I think, you know, there's quite a few brands and teams in the paddock who are slightly envious of the fact that KTM were struggling to make even the top 10. Um, you know, in the first couple of Grand Prix and now are winning races, uh, you know, that's that's quite a staggering turnaround. And regardless of whether it's been uh, the use of a new fuel just before the, you know, one of the fastest circuits on the calendar, um, or it has been, you know, those chassis mods that have just helped the bike turn a little easier. Uh, you know, it's it's, it's kind of uh, all a product of of the, the people both at the, the circuit and also in Mazikoff and um, in the race department, one wonder thing, I should say, where the race HQ is located. 
uh, being able to to react to what the the needs of of the MotoGP and the tire allocation uh, this season. Yeah, just before we take a break on the Paddockcast podcast, David, I just want to ask you a question about KTM over the last few years because I was chatting to I was chatting to someone fairly close to Danny Pedrosa at the weekend over in Misano and uh, just chatting about the KTM test program and how they've been able to develop that bike over the last few years. And one of the things that I found really interesting was that this person said obviously Danny loves the fact that he just has to ride a bike. He doesn't have to deal with the media. He doesn't have to deal with the pressures of racing. All of these things are, are good, positive steps for Pedroza. But he said that uh, from his feedback from Pedroza, one of the big things is you know, he could have gone for four days testing at the same track and then a week later go back for another four days testing at the same track and he'd still never run out of things to test, never run out of a program to work through and it does just show the extent to which ktm throw the kitchen sink at things well yeah i mean you know they they're spending 50 million euros a year and you don't spend that kind of money unless you want to win a winning championship and i think as adam has said throughout they never enter anything and without intending to win they've done it in every other discipline um and so they are absolutely determined to do it to to pull this off to actually win a championship uh they've won races they show that they could be uh, successful um they have a lot of catching up to do as well um but because they've got a lot of catching up to do uh, uh you know they're actually making the investment to to do it, to actually try to ca- uh, uh, catch up, uh, to actually do the development, um, uh, try all, all of the parts and, uh, uh, and and build something which someone can actually win on. They've got they've got everything in place. They've got the rider, uh, uh, um, you know, the, the the talent filter, if you like this uh, the, this um, uh, constant stream of talented riders. They've got everything uh, going on on the rider side. They've got everything going on on the bike side, and I think. Yeah, yeah, they've they've they're absolutely determined to win. Obviously, if there's more than just uh, KTM and Ducati, they're going to bring the fight to Mark Marquez this weekend in the Saxon Ring. And when we come back after the break, we're going to talk about Suzuki's prospects, and then we're also going to wrap up the show with some of the rider market news from in and around the MotoGP paddock. Fly Racing introduces the new FL2 glove. With molded hard knuckle protection, this race-inspired glove is equipped with palm and gauntlet sliders and touchscreen compatible fingers. Available in three colors and sizes from small to triple X, the Fly Racing FL2 glove is the perfect answer at the perfect price. Check out flyracing.com to see more. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Fly Racing. And Adam, we were just talking before the show about KTM, but obviously Suzuki, there's a lot of expectation on them this weekend. Juan Mir, the reigning world champion, it's obviously been a pretty difficult start to his title defense. He's fifth in the world championship. He's been there or thereabouts at most races, but only the two podiums. And right now, this is probably one of the crucial stages of the season for him. Yeah, too right, Steve. And Suzuki haven't, uh, the last time they won at the Saxon Ring, I think it was on two strokes, uh, Roberts Jr. So not a great history for, for the brand at this particular venue as well. Um, but you do wonder, I mean, it'd be, I think it'd be one of the questions that, you know, will get thrown at Joanne, um, you know, in the debriefs coming up this week, uh, whether some more pressure is starting to rise. Um, not only is his teammate doing a good job of throwing the motorcycle down the track and injuring himself, uh, so he's not particularly helping the cause, certainly in terms of maybe development. 
Um, so I, I do wonder if Joanne is starting to feel a little bit more heat under the collar. What's the latest update, David, on Alex Rins? Uh, the latest update is that he will be fit to race. You know, he had a, he was uh, operated on his wrist after falling off a bicycle looking at a telephone, um, and is uh, he, he is scheduled to just take place as normal. I mean, obviously there will be a fitness test uh, before he can ride, um, but yeah, he should be fit. Adam, I was chatting to one world superbike rider who, for this purpose, should probably remain uh, nameless. But uh, they asked me, was he sending a text or was he taking a selfie? Because this <laughs> seems to be quite important to a lot of people. But also, Dave's claim is a little un- un- inaccurate because he didn't crash or fall off his bike. He actually rode into a side of a stationary van, which is, uh, you know, seems even more ridiculous. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's kind of encapsulated a little bit the way his season's going so far, isn't it? I mean, you know, we're talking about Joan Mir trying to put Suzuki back at the front. Um, you know, Alex Wins needs to try and put his career back on track, I think. Uh, it's not an exaggeration, really, to say that because uh, the crashes, without any kind of real explanation, apart from some frustration, uh, I think after um, Magello uh, about the front end of the motorcycle, um, that there hasn't been anything really forthcoming. And obviously, you know, if you mentioned there about Alex Rins' career and uh, the situation for him, obviously there's a lot of riders now that are starting to look at their future options as well and contracts for teams, contracts for riders, contracts for manufacturers as well. And the Rins situation is an interesting one. Obviously, he's got another year left in his contract, so it's not a, a make-or-break stage for him right now. But there has been that momentum that's built up and it's been negative momentum for him over those crashes over the last few rounds. And it is at that stage now where he really does need to turn things around very quickly. Absolutely. He is, um, uh, what did he do? I think four crashes in a row uh, before Barcelona and then he crashes on his uh, on his bicycle. Um, that is not looking good. He's also shown, I mean, the, the thing about Alex Rins is he is incredibly talented. You can see it in the way that he rides. You can see it in his, uh, in his results. Um, but he's just not consistent enough. Um, it's really no surprise that it was his teammate who won the world championship because Juan Mir has been much more mature and much more calm and relaxed about the whole uh, situation about you know racing he has every aspect under control and Alex Rins just seems to sort of you know wandering like a um, uh, like a um, a cheerful little puppy with absolutely no sense of anything beyond what might happen in the next 30 seconds. I mean, we're talking about Marquez and, and Honda at Saxon Ring, but this is also quite a, a formative race for Paul Spargaro because um, from memory, I think he likes this particular circuit. Uh, Honda's record there is undisputable. And, you know, there must be... Uh, at, at any other point in 2001, he must be thinking now, why did I jump off the KTM? Uh, you know, they've just won the last Grand Prix, but now we're going to a circuit where Honda are proven winners. So if Paul, you know, he needs to get that sort of RCV working for him, I think, in the next two races. Otherwise, you know, the he's in danger of the confidence taking, you know, even a further tumble. Yeah, and I think especially for Paul, it's really important, Adam, because you mentioned there about his, his run at Saxon Ring. It's It hasn't been the best of tracks for him in the Premier class, but he did well on the Yamaha there before switching to the KTM. Obviously, KTM, you know, you can take things early doors with KTM with a bit of a pinch of salt, you know. I'm, I'll be honest, I'm getting a bit fed up of hearing about how, you know, the KTM, oh, it didn't work well at this track when we last visited 
because it was two years ago when the bike didn't work well anywhere. <laughs> so, you know, the KTM was struggling, but Paul was still able to come away with, I think, a 10th and an 11th on the KTM and Saxon Ring. So it's not particularly bad for him there on the KTM. And I think that's a good indication that this weekend he'll feel that he can make another step. And you know, we did see progress from him in Catalonia, Dave. Uh, yeah, I mean, he was uh, he especially in practice. He seemed uh, he seemed better, but then you know he crashed out of the race again, and that really you know he just seems like a bit of a, a, a of a beaten man. Just to wrap up the KTM things, I mean, also Steve alluding to your earlier point about the contract stuff for situ- uh, situation for next year. Uh, you know, we know there's only going to be one uh, saddle between Ica Licuona or Daniela Petrucci. Um, you know, if this the whole Raul Fernandez thing doesn't sort of take off and he gets boosted up to MotoGP as well. Um, you know, we spoke briefly, I think maybe on a Paddock Note show or even last week's show about, uh, you know, which rider would you take, Petrucci or Lequana? Um, You know, but there doesn't seem to be Fernandez. that... Fernandez. <laughs> there, does, there doesn't seem to be that much more uh, movement or possibilities in MotoGP for 2022. So, you know, I think, you know, it's a subject we're going to be dancing around for a little bit until those uh, those press releases come out. Yeah, I was asking a lot of people in and around the Superbike paddock this weekend about Petrucci as well and, you know, what his options would be in World SPK. And obviously enough, Danilo has said that he's not looking to come back to the World Superbike paddock as it is. He wants to stay in MotoGP. But the options that would be there for him could be some interesting ones. You know, you could have a factory Yamaha seat, a factory Honda seat, BMW are available as well. There, well, there is officially a a factory Ducati seat available, but you'd imagine that Redding and Rinaldi will both remain there for next year. But it is a case of, for a lot of teams in the Superbike paddock, they'd be quite keen to get Petrucci, but it does look like his time on a MotoGP bike is probably coming to an end now. Well, I mean, uh, I think it's more likely that he, well, obviously, depending on the Fernandez situation, I think it's more likely that he gets another year on the uh, uh, on the Tech 3 bike uh, and Lekawona goes back to Moto2. Um, obviously, we saw Lekawona uh, really ste- try to step up his game in uh, Barcelona, but unfortunately, that meant he was crashing a lot. Um, uh, Petrucci is a little bit more steady as far and, and stable as far as that's uh, that's concerned, uh, and I think he might be a better teammate for Remy Gardner when Remy moves up next year. Um, uh, and then 2022, you know, uh, at the end of uh, at the end of next season, everything is open, all of the contracts are open, and that means it's much more attractive for uh, everyone basically to start swapping seats and to start seeing, you know, who wants to go where. Do you think is that the biggest factor then, Adam, for keeping Petrucci rather than bringing up Raul Fernandez? Because already we've seen how good Fernandez can be on a Moto Two bike. He's still got some rough edges to to, to smooth out, but the, his adaptation's been very impressive. You know, he has experience from the Grand Prix paddock from the Moto Three class as well. We've seen some riders in the past do one year in the intermediate class and then move on to a Moto GP bike. We'll get to the point closer to the end of the year where I think then it will become much more pronounced about whether or not it was the right decision or the wrong decision for KTM to look to keep him in Moto2 if that was the case because given how well he's performed so far you'd certainly expect to see him progress more as the season wears on as well like it, it seems like there's not really too much reason not to put him on a MotoGP bike for me 
I mean, it's pure speculation, of course, but it's not going to be doing the riders any good to be hanging on. Um, you'd imagine that if Fernandez does win the championship in Moto Two, he won't want to hang around. Um, on the other hand, you know, even his words after the Catalan Grand Prix where he lost to Remy Gardner, you know, he was saying he he lacks experience, he lacks racecraft. You know, I think he's prepared to dig into the category for another year um, and just wait for his spot to open up. You know, uh, when it comes to the the you know, the KTM structure and formation. There was a time, I think, when Tech 3 was looked as very much kind of the junior team, very much like Red Bull have it set up in Formula 1. Um, but, you know, Petrucci brings um, some Ducati knowledge to the development of the motorcycle because, um, obviously, the fact you're able to mine the knowledge that Danny Pedrosa brought from HRC uh, when Paul Spargaro and Bradley Smith initially came to the project in 2017, they were bringing a lot of knowledge of how the Yamaha M1 was working. Um, so I think just to cast Danilo aside, especially considering some of the you know, the other attributes he brings, such as his weight uh, and his size, uh, you know, and his particular riding style, uh, I think you know he he would be a more productive or beneficial employee, or you know, to to coin Paul's phrase, uh, to keep on the bike for another year. Uh, whereas if you bring Ralph Fernandez straight in, you've got two rookies uh, with Tech Three, so it, it's it, you know it's hard to really suss out the strategy on that one. Just uh, when you look at the KTM structure as well, obviously, Adam, you talked about there all the way down the feeder classes. They do try and develop people all the way through. Obviously, Pedro Costa is going to move on to a Moto2 bike. There's nothing left for him to, to, to prove on a Moto3 bike. He's got lots of experience on it already from the Spanish Championship, from Red Bull rookies, and now what he's been able to do so far this year. But KTM then have to also look at what happens after Pedro Acosta and who they bring up from CEV this year or who they look to look to bring in from that's already in the Moto3 paddock. We were actually talking about this just uh, off air yesterday, Ad, and uh, Dennis Onchu and riders like that that are already in the Moto3 class. Then you've got the likes of Danny Helgado that's dominating CEV Moto3. I think he's won four of the opening five races. He's done well in Red Bull Rookies as well. There's a lot of riders that are coming through now. Yeah, and you've got the Munoz as well, uh, David and Daniel. I mean, there's no shortage of kind of Spaniards. Um, I think also the Japanese kid as well. He won uh, in the, the Red Bull Rookies race in Mugello, I believe it was. Um, so it's, you know, they're, 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 of course, there's there's fresh pickings. Um, and I was actually just writing up an interview of Johan Stigerfeld, you know, the team director from Patronus. And, uh, you know, a man who has to consider his races right the way through the categories, you know, with three different brands, with Honda, Calex and Yamaha. And he was saying that, you know, he actually prefers to look at a rider for a couple of years in in Moto Two or sorry, Moto Three or even in Moto Two if they if they've done the Morbidelli route and gone straight into the intermediate category, and then make a, a you know an analysis um, and an evaluation after that point, rather than say gambling on a, a Costa, which he says you know one of these riders comes along once every ten years, so it's uh, you know I think the teams like you say, Steve, very much use that system, the rookies, the NTC, Asia Talent Cup, uh, SEP. So it's, uh, you know, there's um, there's a, a big, big funnel for everybody to choose from. Yeah, and I, I think it's always interesting to see what ends up happening as well, because obviously for the likes of KTM, they can pick and choose where they put their riders. Obviously, they've also got the Husqvarna brand, they've got the Gas Gas brand. So there is a lot of opportunities for them to put people into different teams. And that's where I think the likes of Halgado, obviously he's with the Aspar team in uh, in the CEV championship. So you'd certainly expect that he'd be put in line potentially to go onto a gas gas bike. It kind of keeps him in the KTM factory without really 
putting them into the Aki Ayo system as well. Yeah, and then you look at riders like Garcia and Guevara, you know, they're, you know, when are they going to make the step up to Moto2 as well and where do they go? Uh, that's why KTM... You You'd know, imagine K Garcia is going to make the move soon as well, though, Adam, wouldn't you? Yeah, but that's it. But that's why KTM, you know, deliberated on ditching their Moto2 program and then, you know, thought again in in, this, in, in a period of a weekend in Austria and decided to, to keep it. And now I, I'd say that it's looking like uh, one of the most important chains in, in the development process because it has produced... You know, they're, they're two Grand Prix winners in Oliveira and Brad Binder. Um, you know, okay, it's, it's the KTM technology is non-existent. I mean, the bikes are orange, you know, just to have a nice color on them. Uh, they're running Calyx uh, chassis, uh, you know. And got WP Triumph, suspension. And W suspension, sorry, Dave, yeah, and Triumph engines. Um, and the suspension, of course, is uh, from a, a factory floor that's just opposite the race workshop in Wunderfing. So... Um, you know, it's more about Aki Ayu's aligned or very similar attitudes and principles when it comes to development, developing races. I mean, now Aki's uh, more um, fundamental than ever to how KTM go road racing. Yeah, obviously enough as well um, for Aki, it's all about trying to make sure he's got enough riders in his stable as well <laughs> as management stable, because let's be honest, he's got a lot at this stage. I think we've talked a lot about KTM, but the question is the championship leader. Uh, I think Fabio Quattararo, the last time, his MotoGP debut at Saxon Ring, didn't he crash first lap? I mean, he, he was he was out of commission yep. early on. Um, you know, Vinales has, has proved that, you know, the M1 works around that circuit. Uh, is it, He could clear off. Is he going to be Mark's, uh, you know, hardest threat? I think there's a very good uh, chance that it is because we know that uh, Quasararo can qualify on the front row. Um, uh, Mark Marquez, has, in addition to having ten row, uh, races in a in a row, he's also got ten poles in a row. Um, so he would have to be a very good bet to qualify either on pole or on the front row. Uh, so we might well see um, sort of Yamaha versus Honda. Uh, and then it starts to get quite interesting if it's if Quattararo can actually you know make a good start. Uh, which the Honda, which the sorry, which the Yamaha does now with the front uh, hole shot device, uh, even though it's only a little, it's a very short little run from uh, the the start up to the turn up to the first corner, um, uh, and then it comes about it, it becomes about corner speed and the and the the two different ways that the Yamaha and the Honda make the corner speed and the Yamaha might actually have. The advantage in that the Yamaha seems to be braking better than the Honda, uh, suffering slightly less in um, uh, with, with you know rear grip issues with uh, with braking, and even though there's not very many very many places where you're doing it, um, yeah, I, I think it could be interesting. It, the Suzuki should be quick around the Saxon Ring, but they just can't qualify well. And if you if you're starting from sort of ninth, unless you're Mark Marquez, you are um, at the Saxon ring, then you're in trouble. Yeah, and I think, David, it's going to be interesting to see how Fabio reacts to this week as well. Obviously, after last time out, we saw the issue with his chest protector and his leathers, and he seemed to take it very personally when people were talking in terms of for his own safety he should have been black flagged or he should have been forced into the pits or forced to get him get himself back to, to having his, his gear on correctly and I think that's going to be interesting to see how he deals with it from the start of the weekend because you can guarantee the first question he's going to be asked in the press conference is going to be related to it and is he going to still be his back against the wall defensive about it or is he just going to be able to move on from it and you know Fabio's been unlucky 
with his arm pump and then with this issue that he had. And he's left a lot of points on the table, but he does still lead the championship by 14 points. So it's going to be, I'm quite intrigued to see how he reacts mentally this week. Yeah, I mean, there's two ways of looking at it. You could also say that he he was lucky to come away with 10 points um, uh, because he should have been black flagged and race direction didn't black flag him. Uh, so it depends on his mentality. And it is, you know, that, that's a very good point, Steve. It is going to be a real test of his mentality, of his mental fortitude, um, because he is going to get a lot of um, uh, unfriendly questions about it. Um, and uh, he's going to have to sort of suck it up and uh, just uh, give politically correct answers or just ignore them uh, personally i think it's nothing compared to trying to come back from floating from first down to 13th due to arm pumping hereth i mean the following race then was something where he really had to show that you know in terms of his confidence um and his maturity that he could deal with that setback because it was a very very visual i mean i wouldn't use the word humiliating but it was was pretty uh grounding wasn't it an experience just to watch him suffer like that uh so you know i think the superficial thing of um you know the leathers and uh what happened and how it was handled and and how he was perceived i mean he was even making a joke of it at the, at the test by you know sitting on his bike half naked saying do you think i can go out now or something like that um you know his his arm pump issue was a lot more serious to me and uh, you know I, i've said before i wouldn't be surprised if that kind of rears his head again uh, I think he suffered with it at the Red Bull ring last year. So um, there could be a couple of tricky tracks coming up. Yeah, I do think that uh, you're right on that, Ad, insofar as it was such a freak incident that happened in Catalonia that it shouldn't be something that should have any lasting impact or anything other than just how he reacts to the line of question that he gets. But I think it's going to be key to see how he reacts to that, how Zarco reacts to you know, with the questions about, you still haven't won a race, mate. You know, he's been so strong all the way through this season. He's been really consistent. We saw with Joan Mir last year that he took a similar approach, did eventually win a race. You'd certainly expect Zarko to win a race at some point. But, uh, you know, until he does, you know, he, he isn't the MotoGP race winner then, Dave. Yeah, yeah, ab- absolutely. I think... Um uh, I think he'd be perfectly happy if he uh, were, won a championship without winning a race. Um, he seems sort of settled enough. But yeah, it is going to be something which people are going to be asking him, him about. Um, but then again, the, the the again, the advantage of being in a satellite team is that you don't have the same kind of pressure on you. You know, you, you uh, don't have people sort of asking you, why aren't you winning? Um, you know, being second in the championship, everyone thinks you're doing fantastic rather than why aren't you leading the championship, which is what happens in a factory team. So, yeah. Obviously enough, uh, I said that we were going to mention a little bit more about the rider market as well. David, it's getting to the point now where we are going to start talking about it a lot more over the next few rounds. There's a few places where it really does seem like there's a bit of a fulcrum for the market. The likes of what happens with Valentino Rossi at Petronas. We've already mentioned the second Tech Trois seat. And there are a few other seats still up for grabs, but it does seem that uh, what happens with that fourth Yamaha is probably the key thing right now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, uh, as far as I know, I think Petronas haven't actually signed a contract yet with Yamaha. Uh, they will sign a contract with Yamaha, it's almost certain. Um, uh, the It looks like 
obviously we're speaking very early, but it looks like Valentino Rossi is likely or more likely than not to retire at the end of the year unless, uh, you know, and if he wins at Assen, uh, maybe that changes his mind. Um, uh, if he gets close to a podium in Saxon Ring, maybe that also uh, changes his mind. If he just sort of feels like he can be more competitive, then he might start to change his mind. But, you know, all of the signs right now are pointing to him uh, retiring. That seat, then becomes really very interesting um, and you start to wonder who to put on it. Obviously, the bike, the uh, 2022 uh, factory bike, will go to Franco Morbidelli. Um, uh, I, uh, Morbidelli sort of hinted, I think, in Le Mans that he'd had a word with uh, Lynn Jarvis uh, and explained that he felt he deserved a... Um, uh, full factory backing and I think uh, Lynn Jarvis sort of uh, agreed um, rightly so uh, so yeah I think it's um, I think it's going to be interesting to see who put who they put on there and I I mean you would expect them to bring someone up from Moto2 but the candidates there aren't necessarily obvious yeah, when you look at the Moto2 class, most of the top guys already lined up with someone or just uh, not really an applicable rider as well, Ad. Yeah, so I think, um, you know, I think Morbidelli is in the in the slightly unusual situation of signing a contract with the team rather than the brand. Uh, you know, if that is the case, then he's going to have to adapt whether, you know, uh, Petrona suddenly take a left-handed turn and bizarrely, you know, two more Suzuki's appear on the grid or, you know, they, they sign a, a deal with Ducati or, you know, who knows. Um, so, you know, like like you said, Steve, from, from the top of your point, um, Rossi's decision and whoever takes that second Petronas saddle, you'd have to say maybe a rider like Bezeki, you know, if, if Petronas go back to that young or developing the youth aspect of, uh, you know, rookie riders in, in MotoGP, uh, maybe they will be looking squarely at Moto Two as opposed to say like Top Rack and Superbike. Yeah, and Top Rack was asked about it at the weekend, and he said that he's very happy in Superbikes, and you know he'd like to go to Moto GP, but he's not stressed about it at the moment. Andrea Desali has said that uh, he wants to make sure that he's able to keep Top Rack in his bike, and obviously Top Rack and Garrett Gerloff. It's a strong duo for them to have on a superbike. Yeah, uh, the thing is, until someone starts really, you know, beating Jonathan Ray week in week out, uh, then I think it's too early for anyone to start thinking about, you know, uh, a world superbike rider going over. The point is, as we have in Moto Two, you, there are certain riders who become gate gatekeepers who you have to get past to make the uh, to make progress. Um, Jonathan Ray is obviously the gatekeeper in World Superbikes. If you can't beat uh, Jonathan Ray uh, to a championship and uh, on a regular basis in racing, then there's no chance of you actually getting uh, getting a shot in MotoGP. Yeah, and see, that's the that's the thing that's really bad as well because you know we've spent the last five years everyone talking about oh. Johnny should have had his chance to go to MotoGP. He's good enough to have been in MotoGP, to have had success, to have this, that, and the other. Toprak's had seven podiums in seven, in seven dry races this year. He's made a massive step forward, looks an awful lot more of a complete package. But you're not going to beat Jonathan Ray when Johnny's on a Kawasaki with that team around him. And uh, no matter how good of a job Toprak's doing on the Yamaha, it's over 13 rounds. It's not going to be, in all likelihood, enough to be able to beat Ray. 
And if that's the case, then no superbike rider is ever going to get the chance to move over. Toprak's already at the age now where he's 24. If he doesn't go now, he won't get the chance. And, you know, I've, I've said for a long time that KTM, for that fourth seat, maybe not any longer now that they've got Fernandez immediately being so competitive in, in Moto2, but for that fourth seat, what's the risk? And for Yamaha at this stage, what's the risk? You know, Valentino Rossi's not had good results for two years. So do you just try and roll the dice and see what happens with Toprak or do you just try and find someone else? And I think that's what's going to be quite interesting to follow over the next few rounds. Obviously, from what Toprak did in Mizano, there's a bit of momentum behind him now at the right time. But he needs to build on that at Donington at the next round in a few weeks' time. And then he also has to deal with the fact that someone could emerge from the pack in Moto2 and just surprise everyone in Saxon Ring and Assen as well. And uh, you know that's what Fabio Cotteraro did a few years ago. He, he hit his form at the right time on a Moto2 bike and then managed to get what turned out to be a really good seat from a Patronus. And that's where these next couple of rounds are going to be really important for everyone, really interesting to follow. And obviously enough on the Paddock Pass podcast, we'll be following it with Paddock Notes all the way through the weekend. Neil will be back with us for those shows. And uh, obviously enough, myself and David will be on the shows. Adam, you won't be on the shows too often this weekend. Obviously, MXGP action this week. Yeah, uh, for Aston, it'll be a busier weekend. Uh, one of the few that clash over the summer, Steve. But um, yeah, it'll be good to see what happens at Saxon Ring. Like for all the points we've mentioned throughout the show, I think there's going to be a real mystery. Um, but I might refuse to do the Paddock Note show on the Sunday or maybe the show next week if Mark Marquez does win. Uh, as much as I, I like Mark <laughs> and I think he's a fantastic rider, just to see Dave, you know, swigging away from his black coffee with some other dessert that's not, you know, Italian will be too much for me to bear. I'd say you'll probably take a skip on on Friday as well, lad, for England against Scotland. But we'll give you a pass on that one. And uh, we'll be back, obviously, on uh, Friday for the Paddock Note Show. We'll also have a superbike show with myself and Gordo recapping the action from the Mizano around the world SBK. That'll be coming out in the next few days as well. So from all of us on the Paddock Pass podcast, a big thank you to everyone for listening to today's show. This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler, David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Libertines. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com. Somebody was very late. Uh, it was all perfectly in time as far as I was concerned. I tell you what, it's all perfectly in time when Brian syncs up the tracks. Uh, we'll give... <laughs>